but now we, uh, we are continuing on in our series on, on the book of Acts. And what we have uh, covered here last week and, and then this week uh, now as we're in Acts chapter 13 really marks a, a pretty important shift that we see in, in the book of Acts where kind of the first part of the book of Acts, most of the, the preaching of the gospel is, is taking place amidst the Jewish people. And, and now what we see, and, and Brad, as he talked about uh, last week, Acts chapter 10, where, where Peter preaches to the Gentiles and, and the Spirit falls on them, uh, sort of begins this, this shift where we'll see the gospel being proclaimed not primarily amidst the Jewish people, but, but Paul and, and other apostles going to the Gentile world to proclaim the good news of, of Jesus. Um, and what we have here uh, in Acts chapter 13 is really the, the first of, of Paul's preaching. Uh, we have some, some sort of brief mention of his preaching before this, uh, but this is really kind of the first extended discourse that we have from Paul on why Jesus is in fact the Christ. Um, and so we get a, a little bit of a window into Paul's sort of theology and, and his way of seeing how Jesus has come to fulfill all of the scriptures and all of the promises of God that, that come about here. And, and it's actually, it's a very lengthy reading, as you probably noticed. Paul gets a, a little bit long-winded here, kind of like someone else I know. <laughs> Wait, that's me. Uh, sorry. <laughs> But, but we hear Paul uh, here proclaiming, and, and this actually comes in, in the midst of, of synagogue worship in Antioch. Our reading this morning, it begins like this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, I'm going to stop there for a moment. So we see here this, this proclamation of the gospel that takes place here in Acts chapter 13. It happens really in the midst of ordinary synagogue worship. So, so Paul and, and Barnabas are actually traveling with John, and they come to this place called Paphos, or excuse me, they come to this place called Perga, as they're traveling from Paphos, and it's there in Perga that John actually leaves them, and he returns to Jerusalem. And, and so he returns to go and, and serve the church there. But Paul and Barnabas, they continue on in Paul's missionary journey here, and they land, uh, they land in Antioch. And so as they enter into Antioch, we see what actually becomes fairly normal for Paul's practice as he comes into a city and he goes into the synagogue and he goes into their regular Sabbath worship and it's there that he begins to proclaim the gospel. And, and what we see taking place here is actually rather ordinary for synagogue worship in the first century. Is that it would usually consist of, of readings from, from the Torah, readings from the prophets, and then one of the rabbis would stand up and give exposition on the scriptures. And, and so here in, in this synagogue worship, we find that it's actually Paul being recognized as a, a scholar of the scriptures, one who is very learned and very educated, is called on to give exposition on the Torah. But what he stands up and gives them is perhaps a little bit unexpected. 
because he proclaims to them Christ as the center of it all. He says this, we continue on in verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he, took, he gave their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. So Paul's sermon, it begins really with this exposition of, of all of Israel's history. And, and one thing that I love about this sermon and many of the sermons that we see in the book of Acts is what we kind of get is sort of like this Cliff's Notes to the Old Testament, right? You know, when you're in school, you're in college and you have these lengthy reading assignments for your literature classes and you're like, I'm not doing all of that. I've got a party to get to or, or some social event to be at. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read the Cliff's Notes, and that's kind of what we get here in Paul's sermon is he gives us sort of this, these major points of the Old Testament story. And in, in fact, this is actually helpful to us as we go back and we read the Old Testament. Have you ever tried to read many portions of the Old Testament? It can be kind of long and arduous work, right? You have books like the book of Numbers, where literally what they do is they count the people and then they count them again. And you're like, why are all of these things in here? I can't make sense of it all. Well, the New Testament is actually immensely helpful. And the preaching in the early church and in the book of Acts is incredibly helpful because it shows you what are these primary points of the story that God has been weaving throughout history. And that's precisely what Paul gives us here. He begins talking about Israel's fathers. That is the patriarchs. He's talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how God called these men and made his covenant with them that he would make their nation great. That through them, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then he hearkens back to the way that during the great famine as Joseph grew and, and became powerful in Egypt. He brought his entire family, the people of God, to settle there with him in Egypt. And it was there in Egypt that they became this great nation. But finally, when there arose this Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, he began to oppress God's people. He began to oppress the nation of Israel there. And it was then that God sent his servant Moses to lead them out. And God reveals his power over Egypt rescuing them, bringing them through the Red Sea and then to Mount Sinai where he gave them the Torah. And then it was from there that Israel, because of their rebellion, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until finally God brought them to that promised land, the land that had been promised to their father Abraham, to Isaac, 
and to Jacob. And then he jumps ahead to, to the era of, of the judges when, when God would rule his people through these men, that, and, men and women, actually, that he called to rescue his people every time they fell into sin and became overwhelmed by another nation. And, and God ruled his people in this way until Samuel came about, the, the, the prophets of God. And it was Samuel who then ushered in this sort of era of the kings as, as the people said, we want to be like the other nations. And it was Samuel who anointed Saul. But Saul was wicked, and, and Saul didn't follow the ways of the Lord. And so then it was finally David, this man after God's own heart, that he set as king over Israel. And it was David who God established his covenant with. And then Paul says, it is of this David's offspring, Jesus, that God has kept his promise to his people. Not just the promises that he made to David when he established that covenant with him. The promises that he had been making long ago. The promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses and, and his people at Mount Sinai. All of these promises, Paul says, have found their fulfillment in this Jesus. And then it's in the following verses that Paul makes this great defense of, of why Jesus is in fact the Christ and how God has fulfilled his promises through him. Now as Paul proclaims this truth, we find that the people respond in, in varying ways. Verse 42. As they, that is, as Paul and Barnabas went out, as they left the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Man, what great sermon feedback, right? <laughs> Come back next week, please. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So many are curious. Many want to hear more the following Sabbath. And, and some were told, in fact, come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, they confess faith in him. They, they follow Paul and Barnabas and their teaching. And Paul encourages them and, and urges them to continue in that grace of God. So Paul and Barnabas then, they come back the next Sunday. But when they come back the next Sunday, well actually the next Saturday. They come back that next Sabbath. They get a little bit different response to their preaching this time. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So this time Paul has some hecklers in the crowd, some people who are not so keen on what he's saying. And so they begin to actually speak up, interrupt him, they contradict him. And so Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
So as Paul and, and Barnabas are contradicted by many who are gathered there in the synagogue, they say, you know what? It was necessary that we went to the Jews first. It was necessary that we went to the house of Israel. But if you're going to reject the Christ, then we're going to go on to the Gentiles. Because that's what God has had in mind all along. That this Messiah, this Jesus, this promise that he made to Abraham wasn't just meant for Israel. It was meant for the nations. It was meant for Jew and Gentile alike. So now in fulfillment of Isaiah 49, we are going to go and we are going to proclaim this news to the ends of the earth. Now hear how the Gentiles respond to this. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the, de the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles, they are delighted to hear this news. They are delighted to hear that now, because of Jesus, they have come to be included in the promises of God. You know, if I were going to sort of summarize the way that Paul's message goes. I, I would basically just use this image. Makes perfect sense, right? I know. But, but we'll get there. Uh, this is actually one way that has been used to describe, this image of the bow tie has been used to describe the way that God's promises work throughout history. You see, God's promises, it sort of begins large and grows narrower and narrower and narrower. So we see, just as, it, as Paul talks about early on in his message here, is that first, God called his servant Abraham. And God establishes his covenant with Abraham. And, and God says, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So this covenant, this promise, it begins very, very big. But throughout the generations, what we see is the promise that grows narrower and narrower and narrower. So we see that... God's covenant is established not with Abraham's first son, Ishmael, but with Isaac. And then it happens again where God's, or where God's covenant is established not with Isaac's, son, Isaac's older son, Esau. It's established with the younger son, Jacob. And, and then we actually see it happen again where as, as, as Jacob proclaims blessings upon all of his sons, some special blessings that the kings will descend from his son Judah are made. We see time and time again the promises growing narrower and narrower and narrower. And then finally, after many generations, Israel is brought to Mount Sinai. And if you remember that covenant that happens at Mount Sinai, there is a great cutting off at this point. Where those who, who reject God and, and go and, and worship the golden calf, they are cut off from the people of God. And then many generations later, God raises up his servant David. And it is with David that this covenant is established. And it is David, not all of Israel, not all of the people, but it is David who has promised that he will have a descendant 
who will sit on his throne forever. But after descendant after descendant of unfaithful kings, we see over and over again the promise growing narrower and narrower and narrower until it finally gets down to how many? To one. That over time, what God does is he narrows this promise until he finds for himself one faithful servant. One servant who is perfectly obedient. And it is in this perfect servant that all of God's promises are fulfilled. Not just the promise to David, but the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The promise to to Judah, the promise made at Mount Sinai, all of God's promises here, finding their yes in this one faithful servant. And because in Jesus God found one faithful servant, the door is now open for everyone. We see this reflected in in what Jesus says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in Judea and Samaria, and finally to where? To the ends of the earth. God's promises grew narrower until it finally went down to one. But because in Jesus there has been one faithful servant, now who is welcome? Everyone. No longer do you have to go through the covenant made with Abraham. No longer do the Gentiles have to go under, undergo circumcision or adherence to, to all of the food laws, all of the laws of the Torah. No longer is that how people come to take part in the promises of God. But now it is quite simply through that one faithful servant that you and I and all of the world, everyone to the ends of the earth are welcome to come and take part in that covenant, that promise of God. And this truth that the ends of the earth are now welcome to come and know God through his son Jesus, this truth becomes central to Paul's theology. It becomes central to his preaching and his teaching throughout the book of Acts and and even in his writing. Take a look at Romans chapter 10. Paul writes this in verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one gets preferential treatment any longer. No no one is, is better off than the other. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. But now the only thing that matters is faith in Jesus. The only thing that matters is, is coming to Jesus, calling upon his name. And everyone who does this, Paul says, will be saved. Or we see it again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
There is no distinction. There is no preferential treatment in the kingdom of God. Because as many who have been baptized into Jesus, as many as come and call upon him and cling to him by faith, are made sons of God. To be heirs of Abraham, to be included in God's promises, his covenant, is not to undergo circumcision, is not to adhere to the laws of the Torah. No, 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 no. To be heirs of Abraham is to come and cling to Christ by faith. That is how we come and partake in the promises of God. You see, this is why, why things like, like racism do such violence to the church. You see, because racism is not merely sort of a, a secondary matter. But, but racism is actually a competing ideology with the gospel. Be, because the gospel says that God welcomes all, that no one gets preferential treatment. And, and ideologies like racism say, no, some get preferential treatment on the basis of, of the color of their skin or, or their cultural background. These are competing and, and conflicting ideologies. They don't go together. And, and it's not just racism. It's, it's any ideology that says some get preferential treatment over others. So, so racism, sexism, classism, saying that, that some are better off, some are holier because they have a little bit more than others. Any ideology that says that certain people get preferential treatment is a contradiction of the gospel that says God welcomes all through faith in Jesus. Now, one of my favorite stories uh, of this, it comes from John chapter 4. It's a story of, of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Now, now if you remember this, this story, you, you know uh, that this woman at the well, she, she has a, a, rather, a rather checkered background. Now, it's worth noting that, that there were a, a number of, of sort of social things that, that were working against her. First of all, she, she was a woman, and, and it was hard to be a woman in the first century. Not only that, she was a woman and a Samaritan woman. And, and if you know anything about sort of the history of, of the relationship between Jews and, and Samaritans, the Samaritans were looked down upon by the people of Israel. As their descendants had, had sort of intermarried with other nations, and, and so they hadn't kept sort of that bloodline pure. And, and so they were sort of seen as, as less than. Uh, not only that, but in Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman at the well, we find out that she is an adulteress. So, so here we have this, this Samaritan woman with a history of adultery. I, I don't say this sort of uh, in, in a, I guess, pejorative way, but, but sort of in that day, she probably would have had the, the social standing of like a stray dog, that, that's not a joke. She, she would have been immensely looked down upon, immensely mistreated by the people of Israel. And, and I love the way that, that in this story, how much Jesus affirms her, first and foremost, just by merely talking to her. But Jesus doesn't merely talk to her. 
he actually invites her to come and take part in the kingdom. He says to her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this is actually rather profound that Jesus is that open with her about his identity as the Messiah. Because as you read throughout the gospel stories, this is often something that, that remains very much hidden. But here to this Samaritan woman caught in adultery, Jesus just lays it out on the table. That Messiah that you are waiting for is me. And I'm coming and inviting you to come and take part in the worship of God. Not on the basis of your past. Not on the basis of your ethnic background. Not on the basis of, of your gender or your sex. But I am inviting you in spirit and in truth to come and to know God through me and worship him in spirit and in truth. And, and then I love the interaction that follows this with the disciples as they return and, and they're kind of confused that Jesus is even talking with this woman. He says to them, he says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Now this is not, well this is an analogy, but it's not merely that Jesus isn't being very coy with what he's saying. Because in the first century, do you know who wore white? Actually, if you go to that region now, still today, you know who still wears white? Samaritans. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, the time has come and no longer does Jew or Gentile or Samaritan matter because the fields, they're white for the harvest. And God is sending us to those people who have been cut off, those people who have been looked down upon, and he is calling us to welcome them in. The fields, they're white for the harvest. The time has come. God is ready to welcome those who were once cut off. Because God has found his one faithful servant, and through that one faithful servant, all are invited to come. You know, I'm, I'm sure that as you're, you're sitting here, that, that, that some of you maybe feel like there is something in your life that, that sort of makes you not totally welcome in the kingdom of God. To be past choices or, or, or present temptations. And, and I think all of us, we needed to be reminded over and over again that in spite of your sin, you are welcome. In, in spite of anything that you have done wrong, there is no one who is beyond saving, no one who God does not welcome to his kingdom because he's found his faithful servant. And those who have run off, those who have rejected God, God has laid on that faithful servant the iniquity, the sin, the shame of us all. And he has overcome it so that you and I and all the world are now welcome to come. 
to know God, to worship Him, to take part in His promises. You are welcome. You can come. There's no sin, no shame that puts you outside of the invitation of God to come and know and worship Him through His Son, Jesus. But not only are you welcome, there are others who still need to hear that invitation. Others who who feel as if they have been cut off as if they are beyond saving. People that you know, people where God has placed you that don't know Christ. And what they need to hear and what all the world needs to hear to the very ends of the earth is that they are welcomed. That they are invited. That because of the blood that was shed by God's one faithful servant, All are welcome to come and participate and receive the promises of God. Uh, There's a a friend of of Vanessa's and mine that we've gotten to know uh, over the the last year or so. And uh, and she's she's not religious at all. Um, But but she knows that that, that I'm a pastor and and that we're very active in our our church. And, And so she's very, very respectful of that. And I remember uh, one time uh, a, a couple months back, Vanessa uh, sharing a story that they, they kind of got talking a, a little bit about faith and, and participation in the church. And, and she sort of made a, a, a passing comment that it was something to the effect of, you know, I think God gave up on me a long time ago. And, and I remember hearing that and oh, just how my heart broke. That somewhere along the line, she got in her head that God had given up on her. That she was no longer welcome, no longer invited to come and know God and worship Him. And how my heart breaks for every single person in the world who has gotten that idea in their head. Because that couldn't be further from the image of God that we are given in Jesus Christ. But rather, the image that we are given is that our God in Jesus is always still inviting, still pursuing his lost creation. He is still that that faithful father who stands and waits and longs to welcome his lost children home. Because the truth that we have come to know is that in Jesus... Our God welcomes all. Because in Jesus, God even welcomes me. In Jesus, God has even welcomed you. Amen?